So let me ask, where are my dog lovers out there? Yeah, dog lovers? Okay, great. How about my uh, cat lovers out there? All right, so slightly less. Well, I have to tell you, I can't stand cats, so blessings to you if you do. But if you love cats, I want to introduce you to this adorable little specimen. This is the Scottish wild cat. The Scottish wild cat. Oh, see, even the dog lovers went off, yeah? Now take a look at that adorable face, and again, even if you're not a cat person, um, you may want to pick one up, take them home, and snuggle with them for the rest of the day. But it may surprise you to know that this little adorable beast will eventually turn into this. Yes, not the kind of cat you want on your armchair, In fact, the Scottish wildcat will grow up to be so nasty it has earned the title, The Cat That Can Never Be Tamed. There are 400 wildcats left in the world, most of which are in the highlands of Scotland, which is where the name comes from. And while this little kitten that you just saw initially looks adorable, it will eventually grow into the largest wildcat on record. Males can get as big as 17 pounds, which is 15% bigger than the average house cat. They have extremely dense fur, 18 retractable claws, rotating wrists, and big muscular thighs for running. They are notorious to be resolutely and impossibly wild. And so these cats have indeed earned the reputation of never having been tamed by a human, not even if they were born in captivity. In fact, experts have noted that lions and tigers have been successfully tamed. Did you hear that? Lions and tigers have been successfully tamed, but no human can apparently tame this Scottish wild cat. So who wants to take one home today? I mean, come on, the little kitten is so cute, but if you try cleaning the litter box of this one, watch out. Well, maybe you're not ready to take a Scottish wild cat into your house today, but if we could be honest for just a second, I suspect that there are some areas in our lives where we have difficulty taming. Maybe you have an addiction problem you've been battling for years. Perhaps you can't stop logging into your Amazon account and filling up your cart with things that you don't need. Or maybe it's food. You've had a hard day and you think you deserve about a dozen duck donuts because they are just so delicious. (laughs) And now we can pray. Thank you. Whatever it is, I suspect we all have some areas of our hearts and minds that we are trying to tame. But I would say there is one thing in our lives that may seem untamable. There is one area of our lives that can very much be our Scottish wildcat. It's something that seems very small, but it can have a great impact. And so I'm speaking, of course, of the tongue. I'm talking about how we use our speech Some of us use very careless words, and uh, others are more discreet. But even those who are more measured in how we talk slip up sometimes, because the tongue cannot be completely tamed. And if you ever wonder if this is true, just take a peek at the current fodder on social media. People cannot help but run to Twitter and Facebook to offer their opinion on everything. It could be politics, or sports, or the latest movie. In fact, we live in a day and age where our tongue has been extended to our fingers for typing, and we become even more unbridled. In her book, American Girls, Social Media, and the Secret Live of Teenagers, researcher Nancy Jo Sales reports a conversation with a teenage girl she had at a mall in Los Angeles who told her 
Social media is destroying our lives. Sales told her, so why don't you get off of it? It seems reasonable, doesn't it? If something is destroying you, let it go. Smash it. Get rid of it. And the girl's response was an instant. Because then we would have no life. (laughs) Then we would have no life. Then we would have no life. And so let's be honest, this, this isn't just a teenage problem. I mean, how many of us would feel completely and utterly lost if we could not find our smartphones? You see, because many of us are addicted to hearing ourselves talk, no matter the forum. Our words can be unmeasured, unhelpful, hurtful, and spiteful. And today we do this in a more public way than ever. And so I suspect all of us have been on the giving and receiving end of harsh words. And even as I say that, I recognize that there are times when my words are ungracious, even to those that I love dearly. So I'm preaching this message to myself today, first and foremost. And I recognize the more convicting reality is that our words are evidence of what's going on inside us, in our hearts. In fact, Jesus himself put it this way. He says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Can we say that together? The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And friends, it doesn't matter if you're sitting in here today and you are a Christian or not. I think we can agree that our tongues are difficult, if not impossible, to tame. But they're a reflection of what is going on in our hearts. And so I would invite us to ask at the outset here today, what is in my heart and what's in your heart? We've reached chapter 3 of our study of James's letter to the church where he will address the topic of speech and wisdom The title of our message today is How to Tame a Tongue. And before we dive in, let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbled by the reality that we have untamable tongues. And Father, we're even more humbled by the reality that we have hearts, hearts that are inclined not to love you and not to pursue you, Lord. And so I pray today that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would humble us even more. Father, that you would help us to recognize that there was one who came who died for us so that we could have new life and give us a new heart so that our words would be reflective of a heart that has been transformed and changed by you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would have soft hearts to hear your word. And we ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us today, last week Pastor Dave walked us through a very challenging passage at the end of chapter 2 of James where we learned that faith without works is dead. Indeed, our works are not meritorious. They do not save us. But if you are a Christian here today, if you've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be evidence in your life. And so to a major extent, James continues that mindset into chapter 3 and applies it to both speech and wisdom. Now, I want to mention at the outset today, I am covering all of chapter 3. This passage is often broken into two or three sermons, but I am excited to preach all of it because there is a powerful parallel I would submit between verses 1 to 12 and verses 13 to 18. How we use our tongues is directly connected with what we understand about wisdom. As such, you're going to see me skipping around the verses a little more than usual, but we'll begin 
in verse 1, where James addresses teachers, and he says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And to the preacher, that makes one want to maybe run away sometimes. When preaching a passage like this, it is quite humbling for the preacher himself. And I suspect many of us have been impacted by teachers in our lifetime. Teachers, whether they are skilled in explaining the scriptures in the local church, or we have encountered teachers in the school system who have uh, the ability to shape our minds and our thinking. Because this was such an influential position, James says to us here, few should aspire to it. Additionally, in the ancient Mediterranean world, teachers were held in very high respect. And because of this high level of respect, those who were teachers wielding both authority and influence in the local church, and the same is true today. Whether you're a preacher from the pulpit, or if you are teaching a class to adults or children, you wield influence over people's lives. In other words, we help people understand God's word, and we will be judged more strictly for what we say. In fact, James includes himself in this verse. Did you notice that he says, we who teach will be judged more strictly? Even the guy who's writing the letter includes himself. He's speaking here of the eschatological judgment in the future, where we're all responsible for what we teach, he says, because with great responsibility comes greater accountability. So beware. Now, while the rest of the passage can certainly be applied to the life of the Christian, James mentions teachers at the outset because they are likely a big part of the problem that is going on in the church and that James is going to address. A teacher who cannot keep their tongue in check is a huge problem, he's going to say. And it may have also been true that there was unqualified people in the church who were trying to usurp authority to seek public honor as a teacher. This is one of the main reasons that James asks this question if you skip down to verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? If you're going to be a teacher, you need to possess wisdom, which is not merely knowledge. You see, teachers in James' day were the elite. They were the people who went to that school, maybe a local university like Lehigh University or others. They were the people who were held in high esteem. And they were the people who would have had a hard time believing that they actually needed wisdom. And so James asked this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now the Greek word for wisdom is the word sophos, which is where we get our English name Sophia. And so if there's any Sophias here today or watching online, your name literally means wisdom and we could learn a lot from you. The Hebrew word for wisdom in the Old Testament has this meaning. It's where theory and practice intersect. It's not simply about having knowledge, but it was applying the knowledge to how you lived. In other words, the person who is wise will show it by how they live, which James is going to get to in a minute. And wisdom in the Old Testament always, always, always has its orientation towards God and his ways which can be convicting for our 21st century interconnected minds because today it seems like everyone wants to be an expert. I mean, if you have a smartphone, you can Google answers instantaneously. I didn't even need to give you that word study. You could look it up on your smartphone right now. Playing trivia is not really fun anymore. 
In fact, if you have an opinion, even if it's not researched or thought out, you can go write a blog post about it, or if you want to be really pithy, you can take those 137 characters on Twitter and offer your expert opinion. And here's the scary thing. We buy it. We think everyone is an expert nowadays, and when everyone is an expert, I would suggest no one is. Or put another way, when everyone appears to have authoritative opinions, it is difficult to discern between the fake experts and the real experts. And so, friends, I pray today that we would be people of genuine, godly wisdom. Because as we will see, wisdom is the remedy for our speech problems. In fact, during the rest of our time together, I would like to show you three truths from this passage that relate to speech and wisdom. The first is that positive speech builds others up, negative speech tears others down, and finally, we will see the remedy for our speech problems. But first, James shows us the benefits of positive speech, because positive speech builds others up. But notice here again, and throughout the passage, that speech and wisdom are linked. If our speech is positive, we need to discover its source. And what is the source of positive speech? Well, James will tell us it's humility. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Yes, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And see, again here, wisdom is not mere knowledge. It's the intersection of theory and practice. Anyone who claims that they're wise needs to live wisely. And so James says, as he did at the end of chapter 2, Show me. If you are wise, you need to show me. Show me your deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The phrase literally is the humility of wisdom, which was very odd in the Greek Hellenistic world because humility was not a well-respected phrase in Greek thought. But the New Testament writers followed Jesus' teaching, which said that humility involved a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before our God and a corresponding lack of pride with our fellow people. In other words, if you have wisdom, you will see your sin more greatly and your great need for a Savior. In fact, Steve Coble used this C.S. Lewis quote a few weeks ago, and it bears repeating. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And my friends, we have to admit here today that knowledge can puff us up very quickly, as Paul warned. And knowledge can be hoarding for ourselves and used to make us look good. Knowledge can lead us to thinking of ourselves more highly than we should, but wisdom helps us to see our position before God rightly and always look to the interests of others as we reflect the character of God. Now, some of us in this room are very smart, but no matter how smart you are, never become proud. In fact, I suspect most of us are aware that this past Wednesday marked the passing of the great evangelist Billy Graham. It's hard to meet a Christian today who's not been touched in some fashion by his ministry. Billy lived to be 99 years old, and even in his 90s, he would say that he was learning more about God and from others around him, which begs the question, if Billy Graham, if Billy Graham had more to learn at 99, can we also humbly admit that we have more to learn? May we never become proud, no matter how smart 
we are, which James is actually going to have some harsh words for the proud in next week's passage, so stay tuned. Today, let me encourage you with this. Always pursue humility, which will affect our speech and how we speak to others. And especially if you are a teacher with influence, always be humble, because your tongue, the words you say, can change the course of people's lives. In fact, let's, let's jump back to the beginning of chapter 3 where James explains this in greater detail. In verse 2, he says this. He says, we all stumble in many ways, and anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So James admits teachers are not perfect. In fact, no one is perfect. We all sin. The force of the Greek grammar is what's called a first-class condition here. And what he's saying is that if someone could remain sinless in speech, they would be perfect. But the grammar also indicates that that's just an ideal. It's not going to happen in this life. And he doesn't hesitate to tell us that words are powerful. And so James gives us a picture of just how powerful words can be. Look at verse 3. He says this, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, I don't want to suggest that you don't know what a horse looks like, but I'm going to put a picture up here anyway to remind you. Now, I'm not a, a horse rider, but I've been on a horse, and I was amazed at what a small bit can do to influence this huge animal. I mean, come on. The horse is way bigger than you or me. It's stronger than you or me. I mean, they could kick us off and run us over. But that bit that's in his mouth, we can use to influence their direction. Or take ships as an example, he says. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go, as another example. Now, some of us read that verse and say, I wish I was sailing right now. Man, I wish I was on a cruise ship destined for the Bahamas because this weather in New Jersey is ridiculous. Except that carnival cruise boat where everyone just got into a fight. Let's not be on that one. But here's the point. Boats are large, and yet a small item like a rudder moves it. In fact, I recently saw an article about a, news, a new cruise ship that was touted as the largest cruise ship ever, right? Big boat. Wow. But you know what's even more crazy? It is still controlled by a small rudder. It just got bigger. And James says the same thing is true about our tongues. Likewise, he says in verse 5, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Did you know the average tongue is only four inches long? And that's pretty small. Maybe some have above average tongues. I don't know. And yet its effects can be great. Boasting can be either good or bad. It's the content of the boasting which determines that. Do you remember that old song, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names or words can never hurt me? Yeah, did your mom teach you that too? Man, somewhere along the line, I learned that song, and somewhere later on down the road, I learned that my mother lied to me. Shame on her. Because a stone may break my bone. I'm not really sure a stick could break my bone, but words absolutely hurt. In fact, words get lodged into our hearts and can affect the rest of our lives. Even if you are not a Christian, you know this. I mean, words are powerful 
And they can redirect the course of our life. Do you think that the dad yelling at his son during a little league game is not going to affect him down the road? Do you think that the mom who tells her daughter she needs to lose weight to be pretty is not going to get lodged in her heart? How many of us are sitting in counselors' offices right now because of the words that our parents or our friends or our teachers said to or about us when we were younger? How many of us are afraid to commit to a relationship because of the words of a previous boyfriend or girlfriend? Words are powerful. And some of us even have completely changed the direction of our life because of the words that were spoken to us or the words that were withheld from us. See, the truth is negative words have a more powerful effect than positive words. We need far more positive words to overcome and reverse the, the, the negative words we've heard. Now, whether you've been a victim or a perpetrator in here today, the solution is the same. We need to see wisdom and seek the wisdom which comes from God above, as we're going to see shortly. But before we get there, I want you to stop and look around the room right now. Look to the person to your right and the person to your left. Look at the person behind you. It's okay. Look at the person in front of you. And now I want you to receive this truth. Everyone needs encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement. Can we say that together? Everyone needs encouragement. Because encouragement, friends, brings life. Encouragement are the words of life. But encouragement is so difficult for many of us. Why is that? I think because our default mode is often criticism. And I would suggest that criticism is rarely done well. I mean, wh- and let's just ask, why is it that we want to criticize? I mean, we can try and justify it by saying we're trying to help or we do it out of love. But often, if we're honest, we run to criticism because we want to be right. Because we want to win. Because we want the other person to know that we're intelligent. And so we run as fast as we can to criticism. And we have to be dragged to encouragement. And see, the root of criticism is often pride. It's often us thinking too highly of ourselves. And wisdom teaches us this is not true. Wisdom leads to humility, which when we do have to confront people, causes us to do it carefully, choosing our words with love and care, and respect. And I am not suggesting that there is not a place for constructive critique and and, and exhortation, but I am saying we need to learn to do this well. Because it's not simply about being right. It's about trying to understand and speak the truth in love, as Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4. You know, I was recently recently watching a leadership video by Bill Hybels, who's the uh, founding pastor of Willow Creek Church outside of Chicago, And in the video, Bill shared his philosophy about having difficult conversations with people who come into his office. He said, you know, people come in and we may have to talk about hard things, but I have one goal when they leave my office. And do you know what that is? I want them to be encouraged. In fact, he went so far as to say, I want them to be levitating out of my office when they leave. Maybe not literally, but you know the experience when you receive encouragement. And it's a skilled person who can have a difficult conversation and still have the other person leave encouraged. But that's the power of positive speech. It comes from wisdom and knowing the power of our tongues. 
And church, I would submit to us today that we need to be more about getting people to levitate. We need to be about levitating speech because we know the next point all too well. It's that negative speech tears others down. Negative speech tears others down. All of us in this room have been on the receiving end of negative speech, and all of us have dispensed negative speech. In fact, I want you to see that there is a powerful connection between worldly wisdom and negative speech. Look down at verse 14 and see what James describes as being the motive of negative speech. Verse 14 says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. Did you catch what the motive is? See, some of us know all too well about bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy is jealousy. It it seeks the best for oneself, regardless of what might be good for the other person. Bitter envy always wishes for others to have less than us, whether it's possessions or or opportunities. It's antithetical to the royal law that James was talking about back in chapter 2, where we love our neighbors as ourselves. When bitter envy is combined with selfish ambition, James is giving us an image of partisan politics in the first century. The image James is painting is of angry competition, undermining one another's, fighting for your own rights, which is the opposite of the humility that comes from wisdom that he just talked about. And since James was writing this, we have to assume that it was happening in the church, among his people, and particularly among the teachers who were vying for influence. Careless words were being thrown around, and James will tell us, this should not be. The motive comes from worldly wisdom, which he says in verse 15 is demonic. Verse 15 says, such wisdom does not come down from, the he- from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wow. I-, I love how the NIV puts the wisdom in quotation marks, because James is giving us a-, a wink and letting us know, yeah, that's... That's not actually wisdom. It doesn't come from God. In fact, he goes so far as to say it comes from Satan himself. He says, this thing you call wisdom is demon-inspired. It's based on a a lie that comes from the father of lies, as Jesus called Satan in John 8, 44. And look at the result of this wisdom, verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You see the picture he's painting. And if you're always thinking about yourself first, if your ambition is for yourself, it's going to be chaos. If the church is full of people who are seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God, what do you think will happen? And who wants to be part of a community where everyone is looking out for themselves? But is that not exactly the mindset that we find in the world Worldly wisdom says, look to your own interests first. Godly wisdom says, put others first. Which community would you like to be a part of? A community of self-giving love or of selfish gain? And make no mistake, this wisdom is the driving force behind negative speech. This demonic wisdom can so quickly take over our hearts and our minds, and then our tongues become weapons we wield and not tools we use for encouragement. As Jesus said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Let's jump back to the beginning of chapter 3 and see the power of speech. Verse 5 says this, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. 
And see, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, James, kind of harsh, right? But do you see the power of the tongue for destruction? James continues his metaphor and he says, the tongue is like a small spark and has the ability to destroy a whole forest. Now just take a step back and recognize how powerful that is. In fact, this recent event may help illustrate and recognize, help us recognize the severity of what James is saying here. You may remember that this past December, wildfires raged across Southern California. In fact, those who work in the reinsurance industry are still dealing with this. Amanda and I watched this very closely because her family is from the Los Angeles area and her aunt almost had to evacuate because of the brutality of these fires. One of the fires, the wildfires, became the largest in modern California history. And see, what happens is the renowned Santa Ana winds start blowing warm air down through the region and it results in dried out vegetation that's easier to burn. But the first fire was started in the way that every fire is, with a spark. And what caused the spark? Well, you know, a recent survey said the overwhelming initial cause of wildfires is what? Humans. Oh, maybe somebody dropped a cigarette butt on accident, or a campfire wasn't put out, or, or a, a chain was dragging behind a car. A spark occurred, and then the Santa Ana winds blow, and the fire gets out of control, and the people of Southern California know very clearly the picture that James is talking about here. And church, what James is saying to us is this. A few careless words have the ability to bring devastating consequences. How do rumors get started? With a spark. How do reputations get ruined, even if the rumor is not true? With a spark. How does gossip begin? With a spark. And then the Santa Ana winds blow, and it's out of control. Destruction follows. And even if you're not a Christian here today, you are saying in your mind, preach it! It's okay to admit, I know. It's a human issue. Because you know the destructive power of words. And by the way, what we do in the church sometimes is a little more insidious. Often we sugarcoat gossip by calling them prayer requests. Or we tell people we're just venting our frustrations. And we carelessly take information that people share with us, and then we share it with others without asking permission under the guise that we just want to pray. We often need a reminder that the tongue has the ability to set a whole forest on fire. Some of you may be aware of the name Dave Ramsey, the Christian financial guru. In fact, we're going to be doing one of his Financial Peace University classes in just a few months, so stay tuned on that. But I mentioned Dave Ramsey because he has a policy in his company. He will fire people if they gossip. He says, we make it very clear when people are hired, and we talk about this in staff meeting. Why? Because we understand that gossip can destroy a workplace. In fact, James himself goes so far as to say our words can corrupt the whole body. He says the tongue is a world of evil. The tongue is the embodiment of the fallen world in which we live in. And just like the right foot on the Christian driver is the last part converted, the tongue is the last part to feel the effects of our sanctification. Take notice of two other points in this verse. First, there's a double meaning in the phrase whole body. Not only does the tongue stain us individually by how we speak. Next slide, please. 
<clears throat> it also affects the witness of the body of Christ corporately. The tongue wreaks havoc and corrupts our entire lives. A second, James uses that fiery image of hell to describe the destructive power of the tongue, where James tells us in verse 15 that worldly wisdom is demonic or of the devil. And so it would stand to reason there's a connection here. Because worldly wisdom inflames the tongue. And to further describe the seriousness of this, James also uses that word Gehenna for hell, a word Jesus often used. The word referred to a valley just outside Jerusalem where child sacrifices were made to the false god Molech. It's a powerful, powerful image to describe the destructive power the tongue can bring. And so with that in mind, friends, I just simply have to say, beware the tongue. We need to measure our words carefully. Don't let worldly wisdom deceive you, but let godly wisdom tell us to think more humbly of ourselves and look to others first. Beware the tongue, because here's the reality. Verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. See, because we can tame beasts. We might even be able to tame the Scottish wildcat before we can tame the tongue. And James recalls here God's mandate to humanity to rule over and subdue the earth in Genesis 1.26. But our inability to tame our tongue is evidence of the sinful nature that is within us. Which is why James can say the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now in the Bible the term restlessness is always an indicator of the kingdom of evil. James is giving us an image of something that is uncontrollable and may at some point lash out. And when we lash out, our tongues are full of deadly poison. In fact, some of us, and some of us have spoken poisonous words even to people we love. This is a callback to Genesis 3 where the fall occurred and the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with what his words, with lies, and brought death to humanity. And so as we conclude this section, can we admit together that we have the ability to say the most awful things? Marriages are destroyed by the things we say. Families are broken apart. If you're a teenager here today, you know, you know how friendships can be destroyed. It's the things you say in the halls of the schools or the comments that are made on Instagram. In fact, the bullying epidemic in middle and high school is started by what? Harmful words. Nations. Go to war over careless words. People lose jobs and churches are destroyed all because of what? The things we say. Now you may not consider yourself a violent person here today, but there may be times when you speak violent words or you speak flippantly. James, Jesus himself gives us a stern warning in Matthew twelve thirty six. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And so, church, my exhortation is this. Let us measure our words wisely. And here's what I, wanna, I would like to impress upon our hearts today. It's this. Part of being an authentic Christ follower is allowing the Holy Spirit to transform how we speak. And so I need to go back. And I need to look in the mirror and, that James has already told me about in chapter 1. And I need to ask myself, am I a doer of the word? Do I love my neighbor as myself? Do I love God 
because it will be reflected in how I speak. We are called to speak words of life, not death. And it's a sobering reality to realize that once we speak, we cannot take our words back. Once they are spoken, they are spoken. And so friends, I confess that even as I read this, these words of James, I don't measure up. I use careless words. There are times when I get angry and I want to lash out. I don't want people to levitate out of my office. I want to tell them like it is. And I suspect some of us in here feel the same way. Is there hope? Well, James concludes this section by showing us the remedy for our speech. The remedy for our speech. In fact, if you look in verse 9 and 10, James is making an important theological point, And he says this. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father as we did before and we sang worship. And with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth, the same mouth that sings praises to God, comes cursing. Praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, he says, this should not be. Did you hear that? James is saying that our words matter because we are speaking to people made in the image of God. And all people are made in the image of God. And we should speak to everyone with love and respect. And which begs the question that James raised back in chapter 2. Who is my neighbor? Everyone is our neighbor. All are made in the image of God. And James is calling out the church here. And he says, when you speak of, uh, to people, your tongue produces praise and cursing. He says, as he did in chapter 1, you are a double-minded people. We want to act like we're wise, like we have all this knowledge. And yet, out of the same mouth, we praise God, and then we leave church and we go and curse at the person who cut us off on the side of the road. James says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The answer is unequivocally no. Do not be that double-minded person. Your speech must be transformed. And you're asking the question now, how? What's the remedy? Verse 17, the wisdom from heaven. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then peace-loving, considerate, and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, doesn't that sound like the type of people you want to be around? I mean, in fact, if we're honest, the people we are attracted to are people who embody this. Because nobody wants to sit down with a person who is full of bitter envy and selfish ambition, who is spewing words of death and backbiting other people. Who wants to have lunch with that person? No, we want to surround ourselves with people who speak words of life. We want to be around people who are are peace-loving, not people who cause strife. We want to be around people who are considerate, not those who are self-serving. We want to be around people who who, who are submissive, who who don't discriminate, but are are authentic. We want to be around people who who give mercy because we desire mercy. They're merciful and full of good fruit. That all comes from the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is characterized by humility, not selfishness and pride. And so, friends, as we come to the end of our time here, I just, my hope for today is that we would recognize this. This wisdom from above, as much as we desire it, is not our natural inclination. We do not 
want to live this way. In fact, if we left to our own devices, we would choose worldly wisdom over godly wisdom every time because in our sinful state, we worship ourselves and our hearts are bent towards wickedness that comes out in our speech. And we need to recognize today that the remedy for our speech is the wisdom from above getting lodged deep down in our hearts. See, what Jesus said in Luke 6 still rings true. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And you may be sitting here today saying, I'm not good. I I can't do that. And my question is this, has there ever been a good man? Has there ever been anyone who spoke pure words? And if you read the whole Bible, you'll see, yes, there is. He himself was called the Word, who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. He was the one who, through the words he spoke creation into existence, See, church, it is through the God-man Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross that a way was opened for the wisdom from above to come down and enter into our hearts. So how do we get this wisdom from above? And I would simply suggest to you, we need to recognize this. We get wisdom from above. When we realize that there was one, next slide please, who came from above so that we might be born from above. We get the wisdom from above when we realize there was one who came from above so that we might be born from above. And don't you see that we need to look to a power outside of ourselves, not not us pulling ourselves up by our own efforts. And that's what the Christian gospel is all about, that Jesus Christ, the true wisdom of God that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.24, came down from his place on high in heaven and became a man. And the gospel writer John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But in his humility, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. And so you ask yourself today, how do you tame the tongue, the thing that is untamable? We tame the tongue by getting connected to the Word himself and allowing his helper, the Holy Spirit, to transform our hearts so that we are shaped by the true wisdom that comes from above. And when that happens, what is the result? Well, James tells us in verse 18, he says, Peacemakers, we become peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Because peacemakers are people who speak both grace and truth. They they are people who are not in it for themselves. They're in it for the glory of God. And we seek to sow peace when we recognize we've been given grace. And friends, we need to be people who give grace because we're people of peace. Because grace-given people speak gracefully. Grace-given people don't speak words of death. They speak words of life. We don't speak from a posture of pride, we speak with a humble heart because we've been born from above and receive the wisdom from above. In other words, we speak with humility that comes from wisdom. And so as we leave here today, let me just offer you a few challenges. And the first and most important is this. We need to go home, we need to look in the mirror, and we need to ask ourselves, what is in my heart? What is in my heart? 
Because the words coming out of our mouths are a reflection of that first and foremost. Maybe you heard me speak about encouragement today and you, you realize you need to encourage someone. Well, don't be afraid to text a word of encouragement to them right now. The service is almost over, so just do it. Or maybe you realize today that you've been careless with your words and you need to repent and ask forgiveness from someone. Don't let another day go by before you do that because words are powerful. Worship team, would you join me on the stage? And as we close out here today, I would just point back to say that James says, out of our mouths come both praise and cursing. And then just as quickly as he says that, he says, this should not be. And I want us just to imagine what would happen if we became people who spoke words of life, not words of death. Just imagine the impact that we could have. How would that change our world? And I'll tell you how it would change our world. Others would look at us and they would say, there's something different about those Christians. And there is. Because we are people who have been set free. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alive. And death no longer has a hold on us because Jesus Christ is risen. And that we should... And that should change the way that we speak. May our words not be words of death, but words of resurrection, life. And you know what? On the cross, Jesus Christ was cursed by those that he would die for. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ did not speak words of, of curses or words of death. He spoke words of what? Forgiveness and life. When Jesus looked down upon the people who were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. May we go and do likewise as our hearts and our tongues are transformed by the wisdom that comes from above and fueled by the resurrection power of our King Jesus. Amen.